The book serves as a bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It serves to show us really both the continuity of the covenant, but also the supremacy of Christ over that covenant. It unites all that was forecasted in the Old Testament with the person of Christ. One faith, one Lord, even one baptism unites one gospel. The same message that saved Adam and Eve saves you. And this book serves as a wonderful bridge between the two. It's not so much old versus new, but how new fulfills the old. It's not so much how Old Testament Judaism was bad and New Testament Christianity is good, but rather it's Jesus is supreme over all of it. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. And even more particularly, there's this driving theme that tells believers, those who are members of the covenant community, that you must persevere in the faith. It is totally foreign to the Bible's message to say that you trust Christ and are a believer, but do not persevere, but live lives totally opposed to your profession. That's foreign to the scriptures. In fact, how do you know you're saved? How do you know you're one of God's elect if you persevere? Yes, perseverance is the work of the Holy Spirit, but perseverance is also the sign to us to assure us that we are his. So hear God's word as we begin this magnificent Christ-centered sermon, the book of Hebrews. I'll read the first three verses as they will be our focus this morning. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let us pray. Father, these words come over us as we realize that you have not left us to wander aimlessly, but rather you have given us your word. You have spoken in your Son. I pray, O God, that you would open our ears and our eyes that we might see and hear. Lord, we are no longer in a state of ever searching, but we've been given clear revelation. I pray, God, that you would transform us by this truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I was sitting in a seminary class taught by one of the more gifted professors in our seminary. He'd been there for many years. Everybody was always lining up to get into his class. And so, In my second year, I was able to get into his class. It was an elective class that he was teaching. And so I took in every second of this class. Everything he said, I wrote down every word. I took copious notes. I would then type those notes into my notebook that is still sitting on my shelf today. This man's older now. I'll go to be with the Lord soon, I'm sure, and I feel privileged that I was able to sit in his class. Now, having said that, there is one particular day that is blank in my notebook. And the reason why it's blank, oh, he taught... He expounded, he did wonderful things in teaching that day, I just didn't hear. And the reason why I didn't hear, because I was dead on my feet. I know none of that, that doesn't happen to any of you in church, I realize that. But I was zoned out. I mean, my eyes were open, but it was like this. Again, that never happens here, I'm glad that that's the case. At any rate, I was sitting in this class, and my excuse is I was up most of the night studying for a Hebrew exam I had later, and then at 4.30 in the morning, the phone, the dreaded phone rang in the middle of January, and I was on the the grounds crew. That was my job that I did in addition to being a student. And at 4.30 in the morning, my beloved boss called me and said, 
Tony, you got to get up. We got to shovel the shovel all the the sidewalks. And if you've been to Covenant Seminary, it's a series of uh, it's a purgatory full of sidewalks. And so I went and I from five o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock when the students basically started arriving, we shoveled and we shoveled. I got about an hour and a half sleep, so I stumble into class and I'm out on my feet. He preached, he taught, he expounded. I didn't hear. I just stood there, zoned out. It was all there. But the blank page in my notebook today still shows, yes, it was said, but I did not hear. And brothers and sisters, sometimes I am guilty of the same thing with my Lord and his word to me. Are you? Because he has spoken. He has spoken. God has spoken to us through the most perfect of all spokesmen, Jesus Christ, are you listening? Do you find yourself whining about God not talking to you enough? Do you find yourself bitter towards God because you don't think that he's answering your prayers or answering him in just the way you think he ought to answer them? Or he's not listening at all, perhaps, you think? Do you find yourself feeling disconnected from the Lord at times? I think that some of these feelings or mindsets that every believer most likely wrestles with at times, I believe these mindsets come from forgetting the most profound of all realities, brothers and sisters, God has chosen to communicate with us. He has not left us just to look at the nature around us and determine it's him and search him out, because we can. It's not sufficient. You can look at the trees. You can look at the heavens, declare the glory of God. You can know there's God, but you cannot know how to be right with him by looking at those things, as glorious as they are. So he has not left us to wander, looking and wondering like so many seem to do. He has given us his word. He has spoken. He has sent us Christ. He has spoken to us. Are we listening? That's really the question. The text before us introduces this sermon called the book of Hebrews. And it does so in grand and glorious fashion. Let's look first at how God progressively reveals his son to us over thousands of years. I say progressively, that is progressive revelation. He slowly but surely gives us more and more of the picture of how he's going to save us. That is Christ. He progressively reveals his son to us over thousands of years. Look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It begins like an essay, a beautiful essay, long ago. How did God reveal himself? Well, long ago. Now, unlike the Star Wars introductions that say long ago in a galaxy far, far away, which you know what it's meant to say. This is a fantasy we're about to tell the story of. Didn't really happen, and no one can go back and search out the record because they're not there. Long ago in a galaxy far. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's saying long ago, in a recorded instance, and you have it before you, the record is there, and it's long ago that this revelation started, long ago, at many times and in many ways, thousands of years ago, when God spoke in the Garden of Eden, revealing the gospel then, all the way through the book of Malachi, just 400 years before John the Baptist came. For this span of revelation, it progressed, the picture of Jesus, and it was long ago in many ways And in many times that he spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Think of how long ago. And think of the wonder of when God reveals the gospel. Did he reveal the gospel in Acts chapter 2? No. 
The gospel is in the Garden of Eden on the very heels of the fall of mankind. He wastes no time in the Revelation history to say to the serpent who caused man to fall, in the shame of the fall, God gives the gospel. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, which will eventually be Christ. He, that is, the offspring of the woman, Christ, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He will crush you, Satan, and in doing it, he will be crushed himself. But he will redeem his people for himself. The gospel is given in Genesis 3, and it pervades the scriptures. One gospel message that saves for all time. The cross is placed in the center of history, and it points to the salvation of all those who came before and by faith believe God, and all those who have come after, you included. He reveals in shadowy form, no doubt, it's not as clear as what we have, but the gospel of grace, there in Genesis 3. Hebrews says it many times and in many ways. That was just the beginning. Genesis 3.15 is the bringing into time and space God's eternal covenant to save a people for himself. It shows up in time and space, recordable history in Genesis 3, verse 15. But it's something that's always been true in the Trinity's plan. But then it gets even better. Many times and in many ways. You have Noah. Think of this prophet of God, the prophetic office that God uses to reveal himself. This prophet of God, Noah, telling everyone that they need to repent. All the while building a boat when it had not yet rained. And think of that message and how that must have gone off and across to those people. This prophet of God, the means that God used to progressively reveal his son is the prophetic office. Noah would be one such prophet. But think of Moses, that great prophet, the one who... God used to do so many things in revealing himself. Great glory has Moses, for sure, in many times and in many ways. And he uses Moses to author the first five books of the Bible. He wrote them personally. And this is important because Jesus refers over and over again to this foundation of revealed redemption. Moses writing these foundational books reveals it to the prophet. And the prophetic office has its purpose in progressively revealing Jesus. But after Moses, of course, there came Joshua, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Haggai, Malachi, all the prophets you are familiar with. This is God's appointed means that in many times and in many ways, he spoke to us, he spoke to our fathers, and then by extension to us. God sometimes would use different modes, many times in many ways. Well, how did he reveal himself? Well, he talked to the prophet. He'd tell the prophet what to go say. That'd be one way. But he'd do other interesting things. He'd, he'd allow fleece to be used as some kind of a test. He'd even say, look at the way a person gets a drink if they look up or look down. He would reveal himself through dreams and through visions. He would reveal himself very mechanically at times and in other times would work through the personality of that prophet to pen Holy Scripture. In many times and in many ways, he spoke to us through the prophets. This is the means that he is appointed to reveal Christ. And that's the point. He's to reveal Christ. If you were to say, what is the Bible about? Very simply, Jesus. From the beginning to the end, it's about Christ. It's all we need to know for life and godliness. And it's embodied in Christ himself. The Bible is the record of Christ. All that builds up to his coming and all that has happened since his coming and how we ought to then live. It's all about Christ. One covenant, one faith, one baptism, Christ. That's what the message is, is God builds this revelation up over decades, centuries, even thousands of years, 
slowly and progressively giving us a shadowy picture of Christ, but a picture nonetheless. Why do you suppose, just for interest's sake, why did he reveal himself so slowly and progressively, at least from our perspective? Why over so many years? Why not in the garden send Jesus right away? After, after the Satan tempts, send Jesus to crush the head of the serpent immediately. Now, we can't say for absolutely sure. This is part of the secret will of God. But there's several things that are certainly true. First of all, we know from Scripture that it was the plan of the triune God to save a people for himself, for his own glory, according to the good pleasure of his own will. So the timing of Messiah's coming would in no way thwart anyone being saved. No one has ever been thwarted in salvation. God brings all who are appointed unto him. And so he manifests his glory over these thousands of years by showing this progressing promise that continues to be true. While we waver in our promises and fail in our ways, as the people of God have always done, he is always faithful. Time after time after time, he's faithful to his covenant for it will never fail. And thousands of years go by from the time of Adam and Eve to the time that Jesus actually comes. And we have this picture of faithfulness in a God who is not inhibited by time and space to accomplish his purpose of salvation. So just one, ask, one reason is to allow this time to show forth his sovereignty over salvation in his people. But also closely related for this, to this explanation regarding the slow and progressive revelation of Christ might be that these years themselves, at least to you and I, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt every claim about Christ is true. For no one could pull off the kind of fulfillment of prophecy that the Lord Jesus does. We're not talking about a couple different prophecies that were made about Jesus. Hundreds of them over thousands of years, all embodied in Christ and all perfectly fulfilled, showing us Showing the faithful, those who are truly drawn to him, that this Messiah is truly sent of God. In fact, we often focus on the unfaithful Jews in the time of Jesus' coming. They are the focus because they are the ones who conspire with the Romans to kill Jesus from a human perspective. But what about Simeon? What about Simeon? Simeon knew the record of the glorious ark built that saved Noah and his family, and kept the covenant seed going. Simeon knew the story of Moses. And just imagine telling the story of Moses to your children, where, and I hope you do, where our father in the faith, Moses, raises his hands and the army wins as he gets tired. This beautiful picture of the people raising his hands again so they continue to win. Among many of the miraculous things done under Moses, uh, the Red Sea congealing and opening up and two million people going through on dry land. Talking to a burning bush, this Moses. Coming down from the mountain. You couldn't even stare him straight in the face because he had seen God. Certainly, this is glorious in the mind of Simeon. Think of the battles that were fought and won over nations that should have whooped them, but they didn't because God was fighting for Israel. Think of the amazing, miraculous stories that progressively reveal Christ in the Old Testament? And how is it that these Jews, so many rejected? Because they were looking for some earthly deliverance. When Simeon, this old man, gets a toddler, and I've got toddlers, they came and sit still. And he holds his toddler up and says, Behold, my eyes have seen the salvation of Israel. All that had been progressively revealed, Simeon understood is to be fulfilled in this baby. God has spoken. 
These awesome signs were precursors and shadows of the ultimate revelation, Jesus Christ. The slow progressive revelation shows forth God's great lordship over time and his glory, his magnificent glory in this plan of redemption. That is embodied in just that simple statement in verse 1. But look at verse 2 and verse 3. For we see that God brought the progression of revealing his son to its culmination at the incarnation. So this progressive revelation culminates in Christ. Look at verse 1 as a preface and then into verse 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but, adversative, but, in the, these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. These last days being immediately, as God has come, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, to understand the relationship between the prophets and Jesus, think of it in terms of the relationship between the moon and the sun. When it's dark... If you have a partial moon showing, you can actually see quite a bit. It's shadowy, it's cloudy, but you can make out things. As the moon gets more and more manifest, half moon, you can see more. And I've been in many mornings before the sun has risen where you've had a full moon with no clouds, and it is clear. I could pretty much make someone out 10 yards away. I could see them. It could be that bright. It almost seems like a light is on in a dark room when the moon is shining like this. But let me ask you, does the moon give its own light? Does it have illumination in itself? No. What does the moon do? It reflects the sun that you can't see. It reflects the light of the sun. It's not the direct light, it's reflected light. And it's not as bright, but it gives you quite a picture, doesn't it? You could sure make out a lot. You could find your way in some instances. The brighter the moon, the more you can see. The more it reflects, the more you can see. The moon is like the prophets. It starts out small, progressively gets more Lighter and lighter shines more light of the sun, S-O-N, and you can see now more and more. So by the time Jesus is born, we've got a full moon, but then the sun comes. Now you have the real light. It's not that the moon is bad and we appreciate what it gave to us. We can make out a lot, but it only makes the sun all the more manifest. Wow, I can't believe that I thought I could see before, but now the sun is here, and Jesus is born, and the sun starts rising, and Jesus lives his earthly life, and it's at 10 a.m. in the morning, and it's in the sky. Then at the cross, when he says, it is finished, it's high noon, the sun is shining, and when he rises again and ascends, the the sun is at its highest point and illuminates everything, and we see the sun now. That's the difference between the prophets and Jesus. It's not the prophets bad, Jesus good, it's the prophets manifest the light of the sun. And when the sun comes, there's no further need for the prophets. Instead, there are apostles. What are apostles? What's the difference between an apostle and a prophet? Apostles have the full sun to show us. They're apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the prophetic office now with the progressed revelation of the sun. Jesus is described for us in a glorious passage that could take 10 weeks of sermons, and I'll do it in about 10 minutes. But follow closely as you see what the author of Hebrews says about the Lord Jesus. Number one, verse two, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the final revelation. Do you see it? He has spoken. That's past punctiliar action stopped. He has spoken. It's all he's going to say until glory. It's all he has to say, and you can search your whole life what Jesus has said, and you'll never come to the end of it. He has spoken in his Son. The text says it's past tense, it's done in Christ. 
There's no new modifying speech from God. Jesus Christ and the record of his revelation, which is the whole of Scripture, is done. It's delivered to the saints. The Book of Mormon has no validity because it claims to be ongoing revelation apart from how ludicrous most of it is. The Koran has no, no credibility, written some 600 years after canon was closed. No new revelation. Even Christians who claim new revelation should be discounted if their word does not comport directly with what Jesus has revealed in the scriptures. He has spoken to us by his son exclusively. Ray Brown says something very well. Listen to what he says in regard to this claim of exclusivity. It is important, Brown says, to emphasize that in an age of religious pluralism, this letter, Hebrews, is a constant reminder of the necessity of God's salvation in Christ. However sensitive one chooses to be to the claims of other world religions, it is impossible for any serious student of the New Testament to escape what has been called the scandal of particularity. By this phrase, we refer to those clear and uncompromising assertions of the New Testament scriptures, that the only way we can come to God the Father is through Jesus Christ, his Son. In a day when many people may try to discern some form of acceptable syncretism, whereby Christ and his gospel become merely one expression among other ideas of salvation, Hebrews directs us to the uniqueness of Christ's redemptive work. God has spoken in Christ alone. Jesus is also the heir of all things. Look at verse 2. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. As part of the Trinity's council, the Son, because of his work on the cross, would be given the name above all names and the possessor of all things. This is what he gets for the cross work. In fact, this is a reference to Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8, which the Hebrews author brings out further later. It says, as for me, this is a messianic psalm, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, God makes this commitment to his son and we, by connection, benefit from that. It's not about us, though, brothers and sisters. It's about the father and the son and what they are doing. In our union with Christ gives us glorious participation in this. He's the heir of all things. It's all for him. But interestingly, he's the agent of creation. Look at verse 2, the last part again. Through whom, that is Jesus, also he created the world. So God, through Christ, created the world. In a sense, Jesus redeems the very world he made. Yes, God the Father created the heavens and the earth. We know this. However, he did so by using his son as the very agent of creation. This is throughout the scriptures. In fact, I would argue that even in Genesis, you have this hint of a plurality of majesty used in the very word Elohim that describes God making the earth. This plurality, that the Trinity is involved. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. He said, let us make man in our own image, plural. So Christ is there in in shadowy form. But it progresses to the point of the New Testament when John says... All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16 For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. When you pray, brothers and sisters, to Jesus Christ, you're praying to the creator of the universe, not just some medium 
that might get the message back to God. Jesus is also the radiance, the radiance of God's glory in verse 3. Literally, this is saying he's the brightness. He's like the hue that surrounds something bright of God. When you look upon the hue, you experience God. And that's Jesus, the radiance or the brightness of God's glory. He beholds God's glory. This is why the Apostle John says in the first chapter of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How does the world see God today? By the church being full of grace and truth. By the church walking as Jesus walked. That's how the world, the world will see God's glory. Because God, the Son, is the radiance of God the Father's glory. Jesus is also the imprint of God's nature. It says in the first part of verse 3 again. The exact imprint of his nature is the way the text reads. It's almost as though you would take a shroud and you'd put it over someone and there'd be this imprint. It would look just like the person it's imprinting. It's kind of like television. You know, when you watch the television, the image itself is not the person. It's an image of the person. It's reflecting the person. It's the imprint of the person. Jesus reflects God in that way. It also refers to his locality. That is, God, God the Son took on a body for us to suffer, to die. He still has that body. He still has the holes in his hands and his feet and in his side. And will for eternity. You're going to get a new body, but Jesus will always have the holes. And he's in a locality. God is a spirit, infinite and eternal. You can't quantify God the Father. But God the Son is an exact imprint of the Father. Bound to locality, but when you see him, as he said to the people who listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is also the upholder of the universe. One of my favorite realities, the second part of verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is actively upholding all things as we speak. Now, I'm not a scientist, and I've heard scientific people talk about it, but it's amazing when you study fission reaction, fusion reaction. When you're just looking at atom and try to explain what holds it together, scientists can tell you all sorts about the electrons and the neutrons and the whatever-trons, but they can't tell you what holds it together. So students, especially those going off to college, when your professor tries to tell you why things are all held together, you raise your hand and say, I know how an atom stays together. Jesus holds it together. And you're not naive. In fact, you've got the wisdom of God on your side. That's how it all, the earth keeps in its orbit because of Jesus. The, the earth doesn't explode out into space because of Jesus. The universe doesn't keep going out into oblivion because of Jesus. He upholds the world by the word of his power. He is totally sovereign. He didn't wind it up and let it go. He upholds it. He is sovereign, providentially controlling whatsoever comes to pass. Nothing escapes his gaze. Nothing escapes his control. He is the upholder of the universe. He is the purifier of our sins. You know, it's so wonderful how the author does this. We're talking big for a moment. Now we're coming down to how it's very personal. Not only is that God who upholds all things, they're upholding it. He has made personal, particular purification for your sin. After making purification for sins, purging sins, expiating sin, as a reminder of what has proved Christ in these various aspects of lordship, we are reminded of the, the work of the cross, the atoning, satisfying work of the cross. He not only redeemed his people from the just penalty of their sins, 
has begun to reconcile now all things to himself. The work of his cross. He's seated at God's right hand, one of the more vivid pictures of his lordship. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the last part of verse 3. Have you ever pictured a king in antiquity having someone sit closely at their right hand? I haven't. No king would do that. No king would put someone at their right hand and be that vulnerable. They'll have subjects off the stage a little bit, but they sit in their throne, a high and lifted up, so everybody can look and see how mighty they are. God takes his son and places him at his right hand. So his son, at least figuratively, you understand this is figurative language. The king raises the scepter to make decrees. He raises the sword to wage war. Both are held by his right hand, figuratively. And so there's the son now seated at the right hand of God, theoretically could be able to put his hand and stop what God would do. It's all the picture of the authority that God has granted his son, that he is now seated, and even now, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Brothers and sisters, we have seen how he has woven history together to reveal to us his son, to speak to us. Brothers and sisters, he spoke to us. He didn't just leave us to wonder what to do, yet we wander around looking like we're orphans sometimes. He has spoken, and his word is the record of that speech. God has spoken in Christ. Now it's time to collectively allow our toes to be stepped upon. God has spoken in Christ. Honestly, honestly, how much effort do you spend seeking to learn what God has said? I began by asking you candidly, do you find yourself whining about God not talking to you? That's a little harsh, isn't it? No, we do a lot of whining. God won't tell me what to do. He's not revealing to me. God has let me down. I don't know what his will is. I don't know what he wants me to do. Do you find yourself bitter towards God because you don't think he's answering your prayers? Do you find yourself feeling disconnected from the Lord at times? How much effort do you really spend to get to know what he has said, what he has spoken? Honestly, how much time? Do it, analyze it in your head. Are you listening to other people more than Jesus? I want you to hear the words in a new light that God the Father says after Jesus is baptized on earth. It's one of the most glorious pictures of the New Testament, isn't it? Where the Spirit, the Father, and the Son together declaring the worth of the Son. Son is baptized in Matthew 17, 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Most people think that's all the verse says. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, is what's said next. Listen to him. Not just look at how glorious my Son is and go on your way. This is my glorious Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I've spoken. Don't wander around like the nations. You don't have to. You've got direction. He has spoken. Maybe we're listening to the wrong people. I hope this isn't the case, but I would hope a, a Christian would not lift the paper to read a horoscope, a fortune teller, and not much different, pipes, pop psychologists, even motivational speakers. Are we listening to them more than we're listening to Jesus? Religious figures, how do they represent Christ, me included? If I don't represent what Christ says, don't listen to me. God has not spoken to me. He's spoken through Christ, and only that which I say that comports with Christ should be listened to. Culture, is that what we're listening to? What's popular in our subdivision, the wisdom of the age, CNN or other various forms of infotainment, because that's what it is nowadays? Sports Center, while being more sanctified than the other ones I mentioned, is that the one... Is that the one that you spend all your time listening to? And I mean, just be honest. How much time do you spend sitting at the feet of SportsCenter? 
or soap operas, online blogs, chats? Do you listen to hours of talk radio every day? I'm amazed at how many Christians listen to talk radio endlessly. With all due respect to these individuals, I don't listen to much of it, so I don't know. But spending hours at the feet of Rush Limbaugh and five minutes at the feet of Jesus? Let's be honest with ourselves. Maybe why we're whining so much is we're not spending time at the feet of the Savior. We got our lives so busy now that our swim lessons for our kids are more important than spending time with Jesus every day. That's the excuse why I'm so busy. Well, quit stuff. Maybe you know and affirm that God has spoken but feel ill-equipped. I just feel ill-equipped, Pastor, to study his word. I don't know it. I'm overwhelmed. I'm, in, I'm intimidated. I recognize that. That is, that is a place that everyone has been at. And I hope that we are a church at this point that brings people in and helps them in their walk. Not look and analyze where they are and say, why aren't you further along? But rather say, where are you and how can we start the road of maturity? And really, all we do is, is shape towards this. In fact, if you would participate in just the basic activities of the church, I assure you that you would gain a great handle on knowing Christ more. Not just studying him, but applying his word as well. Study and application. Uh, we try this at every level. Our Sunday school is geared towards walking you through scriptural truth in a general way down to specific verse-by-verse study. Our ex- commitment to expositional preaching is this as well that you would be equipped in handling this portion of the word. For all that you have learned, I would hope that you would be able to tell someone now at least a little bit of what Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says. Our Sunday evening is a more doctrinal study that helps us take the whole of Scripture and look at particular subjects. All of this, brothers and sisters, is aimed at helping you to see how he has spoken. Even our home fellowship group, which is a time of connection, community, relationships, also has the Scripture at its center, that we would study it together At least read it together. I hope you do this in your homes and family worship. Spend time. If we spend all this time doing other stuff, which I'm not saying is all wrong on its own, but if in comparison we're sitting at the feet of all these other things and not at the feet of Christ, I would challenge all of us to change that kind of thinking. Maybe that's why life isn't going quite the way we think it ought to sometimes. Because we're listening to some other master when we have the creator and sustainer of the universe at our call. Every day, that's why we started Westminster Academy, to equip children. And for me, it's personal. I missed out on 18 years of knowing Jesus. I will not have that for my son. Periodically, we have leadership training, theology conferences. We don't do these things just to be busy. It's because we believe that God has spoken, and we have to listen. Our excuses blocking your hearing, change it. Stop it now. Life is too short. It doesn't go on forever. There will be many soccer games to go to at time or dance lessons. Cut something down so that you can hear God speaking in your life. And the few things you do will be done with much more fulfillment of the commission because we're doing them with focus because God has called us to, not just because that's what everybody does in Overland Park. God has spoken. When will the people of God start listening? David Wells wrote a telling book that every believer should try to read. It's called No Place for Truth. I had some on the book table and they're... They're gone. I'll get some more. Listen to what Wells says about his book. This isn't a quote from the book, but it's something he said in an address to the National Association of Evangelicals some years ago. He said, it is not that there are not enough Bibles in America. In fact, there are enough Bibles in America to put one in every home. The problem is that we are not hearing the Word of God. It does not rest unsequentially upon upon us. It does not cut. It is surely one of the great ironies of our time that in the 70s, 80s, and into the early 90s, 
so much effort was put into defining inspiration and looking at what were the best words to express and protect the doctrine of biblical inspiration. This is important, of course. And all the while that work was going on, unnoticed by us, the church was quietly unhitching itself from the truth of Scripture and practice. Now, if you just look at the history of preaching in America, you'll see this. It used to be almost all evangelical churches concentrated in the exposition of Scripture. Slowly in the early 90s, it became more about literally doing a survey of your local subdivision and hear what people wanted to hear, and that's how we started many of our new churches. Went away from exposition into how-to sermon after how-to sermon. Just a little window as to what happened. While this discussion about biblical inspiration was going on, all the while that work was going on, well says, unnoticed by us, the church was quietly unhitching itself from the truth of Scripture and practice. It is as if we think that the Bible is inspired, but it's nevertheless inadequate to the tasks of sustaining and nourishing the 20th and 21st century church. That's the truth. It's inspired, but it really can't help us. That's kind of where the church is today. And we need a modern reformation. And it will only come in the same way it has ever come. When Christ is preached from the scriptures clearly, effectively, consistently, and loudly. That's what starts uh, revival. Not building a tent. It's faithful preaching and teaching and studying and applying of the word of God. The way it's written in the face of culture. That's what brings revival. It's never been any different. We need a modern reformation, brothers and sisters. It starts with you individually and how you meet with your Lord. It, meets, it has to do with you families and how you make worship central to your family's life. Discipleship is a goal. The church is only there to help you in that process. We're not the end all in it. It's a combination of family and church together. And those who don't have those family connections, that's where the church comes around as a covenant community and helps them. And then as the community grows and makes the word of God central, then the world sees that God has spoken and they start listening. A voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for revelation, and we 